0: Well, hi, this is Zane Horowitz and a, our complete crew of fellows only without any visiting students and residents today, so we're going to top, t- tackle a more esoteric topic, um, that of uh, what to do with the various people who call us asking about cobalt levels and people who've had hip re- replacements and what they mean. Um, there's not a lot written on this just yet, uh, and a lot of it does cover the same ground. So there may be a little bit of redundancy in this. I'm going to start off with a review article that was in uh, clinical toxicology. Um, it was done out of a group called Cardno Chem Risk in San Francisco with Dennis Pastorbach as the lead author and a couple of others. Before I even get into the article, I think it's reasonable to read there Declaration of conflict of interest because there are several. So all the authors employed by this company, Cardino Chemrisk, are is a consulting firm that provides scientific advice to government, corporations, law firms, professional organizations, and they've been engaged by Dupuy Orthopedics, manufacturer of one of the prosthetic devices, which contains cobalt. And the article was prepared and written exclusively by the authors without review or comment from employees or counsel for Dupuy Dupai. But it's likely this work will be relied on in medical research, nutrition research litigation. And some of the authors may be called on to serve as expert witnesses. And funding for this paper, of course, was provided by Dupai, but they were not informed of the results of text. So take that as you may, that basically one of the companies that is in the midst of all these hip replacement lawsuits and had their product recalled, as we'll see. Um, Commissioned this scientific think tank, if you will, to write this clinical review article, and it's pretty reasonably done. But take that uh, disclosure as that a disclosure that perhaps there is some conflicts that exist. So, by way of int- introduction, um, you know we've used metal in a variety of alloys for a long, long time. Um, the cobalt alloys were used in hip arthroplasty since about 1938, a a date that surprised me that we were going back that far. But the total hip replacement implant made its uh, debut in the United States in 1951, also a date that's somewhat surprising, so there may be people walking around, perhaps with 50 years of this in there, if they got it done at a young age. the heyday really for the metal-on-metal, or MOM implants were the 60s and 70s, And that first generation of implants were replaced by something called polyethylene or metal on polyethylene, except those started to create problems. They were loosening. They were breaking down. And then we sort of moved up to the second generation of metal on metal devices, which were started in Europe in the 1980s and approved for first use in the United States in 1999. So we're basically talking about the last less than 20 years of these newer devices that have cobalt and chromium in them as well. Um, around 2008, there was heightened concerns regarding the second generation of MOM devices. And several of the brands were recalled. For example, Dupai voluntarily recalled uh, their ASR, total hip replacement, in 2010. 10, because of unpublished data in the United Kingdom, uh, that five-year revision rates were excessively high. They were 13%. Um, Now, this is something a little bit different because it has to do with breakdown and cobalt leaching from the metal-on-metal into the body, and the majority of blood cobalt concentrations reported for hip implant patients range from about 0.2 to 10 micrograms per liter, and this is just based on their review of literature. There's a small number of patients that have higher levels. And they're in case reports and in some reviews. And we're going to cover those today. But there's no real guide to guide physicians like when to get these, what does it mean, what if it's elevated, what do you do? So they basically did a massive literature review of everything they could find, including some of the studies that they themselves had previously done with cobalt in uh, nutrition. the first place they start talking about is is they went online to the Mayo Clinic lab catalog, which has some notations that I think a lot of physicians, if there are anyone's going online to look for tat to do the testing, this may be one of the first places they find. Um, they state in the Mayo Clinic online catalog that cobalt related effects may occur at cobalt concentrations of five micrograms per liter or greater if quote cobalt is ingested. Now that's not the case for these hips so it's not sure what to do with that number if you're doing it for a hip placement. Um, That site goes on to say clinically important implant wear is indicated when serum cobalt levels exceed 10. So we have this number of five with ingestion maybe a problem, cobalt levels of 10 maybe has something to do with wear and tear and breakdown of the hip. But modest increases from 4 to 10 and serum cobalt is likely to be associated with prosthetic device that remains in good condition. Um, in the United Kingdoms, the UK Medicine and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency um, has put out a, a paper that issued a, that a guidance that says a blood cobalt level of seven identifies uh, MOM hip implant patients who may require closer surveillance and to look for them for adverse effects, including local pain or limping, which may suggest breakdown of the hip prosthesis itself. Um, there's a review paper by someone at a group called Samson and Hart that used that same seven as a statistical extreme outlier defined by the third quartile plus two times the quartile range. So that's kind of where that number comes from. It comes from some statistical looking at people with hips. Um, and it's really not based on sort of population-based studies per se. The FDA in the U.S. has, has not adapted the UK criteria uh, but instead states that there's not enough evidence to really tell you what these numbers actually mean. Um, so metallosis uh, it could be described simply as gray discoloration of the joint and it basically means some sort of histological change from metal breakdown has occurred outside uh, the joint in the tissue. There's black stained tissues around the implants, and it may mean that there's some sort of damage to the surface that occurs. Um, When they've looked at these closer, they've seen carbon structures and carbides and nanoparticles have all been uh, seen. the, group, the paper the next goes on to talk about case reports of people who had um, monitoring and, and different things that went on. We're going to go through one of the articles that talks about all these case reports in a little bit more detail. So I'm going to skip over that. But I wanted to talk about a couple of other things. One, as we pay attention to all the articles, there's a difference between whole blood cobalt levels and serum cobalt concentrations. And there may be some factors that make these numbers not completely equivalent to each other. There isn't a consensus that says which one we should be using. And of course, labs will report out whatever you ask them to run. They think there's a cofactor that ranges from 1 to 1 to 1 to 1.2 that correlates with these. But there's a variety of things like proteins and whatnot that probably make that not always true in every case. Cobalt um, eventually becomes evenly distributed between cobalt serum and whole blood. So once you reach a steady state, they're more likely to be equivalent. But during, let's say, an acute degeneration, that may not be true. So whole blood measurements tend to be more stable, offering a better indication of a long-term average of cobalt exposure. Again, in all these papers, you're going to see both used. So a little bit more on just the history of cobalt as a medicinal, nutraceutical sort of compound. Since the 50s and 60s um, it was kind of used as sort of an anemia treatment. It was a known stimulator of hemoglobin and red blood cell production. Doses back then ranged from 11,300 up to 68,500 micrograms of cobalt a day or if you take it as cobalt chloride about 25 to 150 milligrams of cobalt chloride per day. Um, Now when people were taking it people developed thyroid problems that were often reversible when they stopped taking it. Um, some homeopathic doctors also using cobalt noted that it changes levels of estrogen. Um, of course, there's the famous, and we'll probably repeat this several times, the cobalt in beer in the Midwest the uh, 1960s. It was used as a foam stabilizer, so the foam stayed there longer. And it was in patients who were drinking this long-term who had developed cardiomyopathy, all of them consumed in the vicinity of 15 to 30 beers per day with the stabilizer in it, and um, you know they developed uh, severe cardiomyopathy, and several of them died, but they are were nutritionally depleted. Severe alcoholics had other comorbid factors as well. Other things that have been associated with cobalt is neurologic effects, primarily both hearing and vision changes. Some patients were receiving cobalt therapy and workers who are occupationally exposed to cobalt had problems with deafness and loss of vision. Um, there was one case a series back then of 60 case reports of pronounced activation of acne related to cobalt chloride. Um, but focusing in more on the hip replacement, things that we do know happens and may or may not be related to cobalt is you, you can develop pseudotumors around the hip replacement, which essentially is a cystic mass in the peri-prosthetic tissue. Um, It's not malignant. It's not infectious. It's just an inflammatory mass that occurs from probably wear and tear and local inflammatory effects. And there may be a component of delayed hypersensitivity to either cobalt or chromium or nickel or all of them and develop in pseudotumor um, uh, development. There have been some papers and scientific reviews that have speculated that both cobalt-chromium nanoparticles um, may cause both local and systemic effects. Um, These particles, these nanoparticles, are smaller than 100 nanometers. They're more toxic than mid-size, micron-sized cobalt-chromium particles, but the exact physiology of why this would be more of a problem on a subcellular level is really not worked out um cobalt is obviously as we know the central essential metal in vitamin b12 Um, there's numerous over-the-counter cobalt containing supplements that are made Um, fda does not have a recommended daily average amount of cobalt in your diet Uh, the uk group does and they recommend dietary supplementation of about uh, 1,400 micrograms of cobalt a day, and below this level, they state it would be unlikely to cause any adverse health effects. European Safety Authority is more conservative, they only recommend 600 a day. And um, one other author suggested that daily doses up to 2,100 a day shouldn't pose a health risk. So it's in our diet, or it can be in our diet, without causing any long term problems. Um, there's this interesting study that I think some of the authors were involved in where they developed they got blood cobalt concentrations in human volunteers who were ingesting cobalt-containing supplements, specifically a product called Mineral Life, and they put them on this supplement for either 15, 30, or 90 days. Uh, they ingested about a thousand micrograms of cobalt per day, so lower than um, the UK uh, recommended daily allowance. And they got pre-dosing whole blood cobalt concentrations in the volunteers, and they were all low at 0.8. Um, after 31 days of dosing, they were went up to about 16, so above what we'd worry about, um, at least by the Mayo lab. And in the 90-day steady-state supplemental trial, uh, the mean blood cobalt concentrations. Uh, were in men about 20 and in females up to 53 and individual maximum values some of them approached or exceeded 100 micrograms uh, per liter so t- there are differences between the sexes fertile females frequently had higher blood cobalt concentrations may reflect higher GI absorption or a higher physical demand for both iron and cobalt in that age group um, but none of these people had any adverse effects Uh, In both these studies, we're looking at people being fed cobalt, the mean RBC, hemoglobin, hematocrit, thyroid, free, T4, all remain normal. These people got hyper, um, you know, uh, high blood red cells or hypothyroid. Uh, They also tested hearing. They tested vision. They tested perineal motor nerve amplitude, velocity, and cardiac function with two-dimensional and Doppler echo. And at that ninety-day dosing of cobalt, none of these things were different between the, the different groups. So it suggests that that level, although I can make the levels go up, which is intuitive if you take a lot of cobalt, I really don't have a physiologic effect in inducing thyroid disease or polycythemia or heart failure or vision issues or hearing issues, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So they suggest that maybe there's some genetic things, there's different albumin levels in people, there's different free amounts in people, maybe they're like the cold beer drinker problem where they're malnourished, maybe diabetics, all this just theoretical, maybe more susceptible and certainly poorer malnourished and diabetic people are older and those are the ones who tend to get hip fractures. And they noted, as they said earlier, the vast majority of people who are well and healthy and have had a hip implant run concentrations between 0.2 and 10. So those are, I think, the numbers to remember going forward. They have a section on case reports, but we're going to go through that study um, in a little bit more detail, as well as two papers by uh, Meichen, who uh, looked at it in clinic settings, patients who were referred for clinics. And so I think most of the remainder of the article will be covered in the rest of our uh, paper's discussion. So the take-home points are normal people have levels below 10. If you're taking cobalt supplements you can run levels up to 100. Taking supplements for up to 90 days and appear not have any adverse effects. So those are maybe the two numbers to remember um, in this study. So with that Let's go into an article that looked at metal release from hip prosthesics. and they actually looked at both cobalt and chromium toxicity, although we're not going to talk that much about the chromium aspects of things today. So, Rachel, tell us about your paper.
1: So this is um, Campbell and Esty, and this was published in 2013. This is their mini review. And they talk about how um, they wanted to describe the adverse biological consequences of metal release from these hip prostheses. Um, so they wanted to provide an overview of the clinical utility of cobalt and chromium, um, concentrations. Um, and they go over the recommendations for testing. Um, so they, uh, start off with a bit of an introduction, which I think is mostly covered the different kinds of, um, hip implants and they're composed of cobalt and chromium. Um, So the next section is the problem with metal and metal um, hip prostheses. So uh, they talk about the wear and tear on these uh, hip prostheses but if they are well-functioning then they are not thought to have or are thought to produce toxic concentrations um, of cobalt and chromium. However, patients with poorly functioning uh, prostheses have, have had markedly elevated cobalt and chromium concentrations. Um, And this has to do sometimes with the surgical positioning, um, the orientation of the prosthesis, um, and sometimes they can correlate that with the cobalt and chromium concentrations. And there's also uh, problems that come up if you mix components that are from different manufacturers, which makes sense. They're not supposed to come together. Um, And then different types that impede proper function. Also, if you have increased physical activity, um, the metal-on-metal hip replacement can can have some increased uh, release of the metals. So the next section is about adverse biological consequences of the metal release from the hip prostheses. Um, you can have soft tissue reactions surrounding the prosthesis, um, and then you can have florally elevated concentrations um, with severe systemic symptoms. But this first section talks about the local effects. There's You can have some uh, tissue necrosis some osteolysis, um, and osteolysis. and uh, a lot of it, all, all of this is uh, falling under the heading of an adverse reaction to metal debris, which they um, abbreviate as ARMD. After this, but it refers to um, any harmful biological response to the metal particulate. But they also think that it might be related to hypersensitivity to to a normal amount of metal debris. Um, and so, some of these um, can be the palpable lump seen covered some of this also pain they can spontaneously dislocate Um, they can have neurologic um, neurologic symptoms like a nerve palsy that are more localized and not necessarily systemic the system the systemic effects are um, more generalized neurologic symptoms so visual impairment um, neuropathy poor concentration cognitive decline um, and you can have floridly elevated cobalt and chromium, um, suggesting that these systemic symptoms might be due to the metal toxicity. Um, Revision also results in a lower blood concentration of cobalt and chromium, as well as improved symptoms, so that kind of supports the correlation there. Um, there, However, there are some neurologic symptoms that persisted in a few patients, so not everyone fits under um, under that assumption. Um, they talk about a few more, uh, symptoms, and, uh, there was a study that was done by Akita because they wanted to understand the neurologic basis for this, so they did sterile nerve biopsies, and they found that there was axonal degeneration, um, and elevated concentrations of cobalt and chromium in the sterile nerve, um, so this might be an induced axonopathy on the peripheral nerves by the cobalt and chromium, and that was their, that was their conclusion. Um, from that study Um, and this is thought to be the basis for why you get so many neurologic symptoms. Um, They also touch on the cardiomyopathy that was associated with heavy beer drinkers that um, Zane mentioned earlier and as well as decreased thyroid function um, due to impaired iodine uptake um, and these cobalt induced goiters in the heavy beer drinkers. The next section talks about recommendations regarding cobalt and chromium testing in patients. Um, So the serum cobalt and chromium concentrations are increased in patients with metal debris in the periprosthetic tissue. And um, this is thought to correlate with the degree of implant wear. And they do mention here um, that people suggest that you routinely follow these um, concentrations but that's not universally accepted. They mentioned the UK's cutoff of uh, um, greater than seven parts per billion. Um, they did this metal artifact reduction sequence, Mars MRI, as well as blood, cobalt, and chromium testing. Um, and they recommended that um, the... Is it Depay? DePi ASR? Yeah. However you pronounce that, Depay. Um, should be followed up annually even in the absence of symptoms and then um, if you had a whole blood concentration of that greater than um, seven parts per billion then you were suggested to have a soft tissue reaction and should be um, assessed every three months Um, and this should also prompt consideration for the need for revision they don't say that you should have a revision but they say consideration but a significant increase in cobalt or chromium concentration um, hasn't been um, established. The recommendations haven't been established. So our FDA um, says that there's not conclusive, uh, there's not sufficient evidence um, for all of this, but basically they say that the concentration should be interpreted in the context of, um, of the symptoms. And they're not, they're not able to make conclusions a more specific conclusion about the utility of the routine screening. Um, The next section talks about the assessment of cobalt and chromium concentrations um, in biological specimens. So the pre-analytical challenges I found pretty interesting um, that cobalt and uh, or rather chromium concentrations in airborne dust are 10,000-fold greater than in normal blood chromium. Um, So you have to avoid exposing these um, specimens to the air Um, so this means you have to limit handling of them, um, and then some of the rubber stoppers and the rubber plungers on syringes have, uh, both chromium and cobalt in them, and they're minute concentrations, but we're also talking about minute concentrations in, um, the serum and blood, so, um, you have to watch which, which kinds of tubes and syringes are used and take that into account, um, when you're measuring all of these. Um, Whole blood and serum concentrations have been used in clinical practice. Um, Cobalt concentrations are supposed to be uh, slightly higher in whole blood compared to serum. Um, And then chromium uh, was shown to be higher in serum compared to whole blood. And then there was another study that was done that found that the cobalt concentrations were uh, one-to-one correlated. Um, But the concentrations... And those two different studies were not similar. They were significantly higher in one compared to the other. So um, it's hard to say whether or not um, whether or not those two studies really mean a whole lot. But basically, if you're using if you're using whole blood, continue using whole blood. And if you're using serum, continue using serum. Just compare um, apples to apples. Um, Post analytical issues. There aren't universally accepted cutoffs. Um, so they talk about a few different studies here where concentrations above 19 micrograms per liter um, as well as uh, um, That was for cobalt is 19 micrograms per liter and chromium 17 micrograms per liter were used um, But the MHRA recommendations um, Talk about whole blood concentrations greater than 7 parts per billion um, And then this is used to, to look for the soft tissue reactions There's another study that said the optimal cutoff is 4.97 parts per billion. Um, So these aren't really agreeing with one another. Um, But basically they can be used to identify if there's a local adverse effect um, and hopefully help you with um, deciding how you want to screen these people and how to continue to follow them. Um, The clinical utility of cobalt and chromium measurement is the next section. Um, So this is another uh, group of studies. The first one, they talk about a case control study um, where they looked at the sensitivity and specificity. Um, They measured whole blood concentrations. Um, They were using the 7 parts per billion cutoff, and they reported a a sensitivity of 52% and a specificity of 89%. Um, And I believe that they were comparing to that MRI, but they concluded that um, these concentrations were useful in discriminating between poorly uh, poorly functioning and well-functioning metal-on-metal hip prostheses. Um, and then the next study comes up with a similar sensitivity and specificity of 56 and 83%. Um, and they said that this is not sufficient to use as a screening tool. Um, and they advocated for using that Mars MRI um, in patients. So those studies seem to come up with some similar results. Um, however, the second study um, had a lot of patients that had bilateral hip replacements, um, and it makes sense that those would be um, those would have higher concentrations um, of these of cobalt and chromium if you have bilateral hips replaced. Um, the next study that they talk about. Um, used that same cutoff of 7 parts per billion and had a sensitivity of 57% and specificity of 65% for um, the adverse reactions, um, and they said that this should be used as only a screening test um, and should be considered in, co- in combination with symptoms um, as well as imaging results, and that seemed to be one of the, the more um, moderate recommendations there. Um, and then the next study um, is also similar. We don't have to go through each and every one of these, but um, basically they they come up with um, similar sensitivities and specificities. Sensitivities always being um, lower than the specificities that they were able to come up with. Um, and no one can come no one can come to a very clear conclusion um, about what to recommend and about which cutoff um, makes the most sense. So the authors. Um, ended up recommending in their conclusion that cobalt and chromium concentrations are useful um, in assessing the implant function um, and potential for soft tissue reactions. Um, and they are all. They can also be used to assess the likelihood of systemic toxicity, but they should not be used in isolation um, in these metal-on-metal uh, prostheses, and they should be interpreted in the context of the complete clinical picture.
0: All right, so there isn't any one level It's like, aha, we have to do mm-hmm. something. And clearly, they state yeah. in... Some cases there are people who had normal functioning hips who had levels, the mean level I think they said was 17 Mm -hmm. in that group. So, um, you know, someone calls up and says, I just got this level, it's above 7 or it's above 10. It may not mean anything in the absence of other symptoms. I thought probably one of the most interesting aspects of this paper was the fact that you can MRI these Mm -hmm. people. There's some sort of... um, modification you can do to the MR machine to reduce the artifact you're going to get from the metal. And you can actually see what's happening to the soft tissue and perhaps the bone around these. uh, Something new, at least I learned, that you could probably talk to your radiologist and tell them to do this uh, metal modification technique when you're worried about uh, even something as simple as a joint diffusion or an abscess or something. And people may have a hip on one side or the other. All right.